When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Hack It Out Golf podcast with myself, Mark Crossfield, Lou Stagner, and Scott Fawcett. Today, we're going to be talking the Ladies' US Open and also five handicappers and their perception of their handicap maybe in reference to the Ladies' US Open. How are we both doing today, gentlemen, Lou and Scott? How are we doing okay? Doing good today. How are you? Yep, all good. Scott, you feeling ready for this? Perfect. Got to hit some jumping jacks and some burpees. I'm ready to rock. <laughs> I like the sound of that. So let's kick it straight off with the US Open, women's US Open. Scott, what were your thoughts? I know you've um, you recorded it and you kind of watched it and what have you. What, what, what were your thoughts of the tournament? I mean, I thought it was incredible. I mean, honestly, the, 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 the quality of golf shots from A. Lim Kim coming down the stretch was just... I mean, it's just incredible. I, I do think that it's so interesting, the idea of, of people playing great golf while we don't, you know, that maybe aren't the biggest names playing great golf without the spectators, you know, back to like Zalatoris finishing six in the U S open. It's such a different feel than if you've got 20,000 people lining that 18th fairway, but man, she hit some shots. I mean, on 16, she, uh, she had a five iron that she hit to about five feet, hooped it. No big deal on 17. She's got a great golf swing. I mean, so there are so many quality swings on the LPGA tour. They're just, they're pretty magical to watch sometimes. Cause I'm like, dude, if I could just do that with a little bit more size and speed, it'd be unreal. So on 17, the hole's 393. I'm assuming she was in that 150, 160 range. It looked like she hit about a seven iron. She stuffed it to a foot, just yeah. like it was nothing. 18 right down the middle, hits it to about 10 feet and right in the guts. And it's like, in the last three holes, again, a U.S. Open, she's not hitting sandwiches, five iron, roughly a seven iron, and, and roughly about the same on 18. It's just incredible. The one thing that was interesting from a strategic standpoint is she did drop back to a three wood on 18 that is, is not necessary. And, and some people were saying, well, maybe she could get that just past the first set of trees, but not past the next. And some balls were plugging in the fairways. Some weren't plugging in the fairways. Like, there's no way you have that much you know, distance control, if you will, on a tee shot. And, you know, and, and if anything, actually, the more often you hit driver, if you think about it, the fewer trees you're most likely going to have to go through when you hit it in the trees. You've got a much better chance just from the, the geometry or whatever it would be. It's too early for me to come up with a good word uh, <laughs> of the remaining shot. And it's just, and it's really impressive. It was, it was kind of sad. Like, I don't, I think anybody with a heart, maybe even Alim Kim's parents, we're rooting for Amy Olson. Her stepfather passed away suddenly Sunday or Saturday evening. I, I think it would be interesting to see if they had tried to actually even play on Sunday, what she could have scraped together. Cause I still haven't seen what he passed away from, but it definitely seems like it was some sort of a heart attack car wreck. Not the guy wasn't sick and something like that. I just, you know, compartmentalizing your heart and head for uh, for major championship golf is, is insane. And the one last thought that I really was amazed with is we had 24 amateurs total in the field out of, uh, out of the field and four of them finished up in the top 25. I, I actually screwed up on Sunday morning. And when I first turned on the TV, I almost said the telly just so I could feel like Mark Crossfield. When I first turned on the TV, the first thing I heard them say was, 
that we had five amateurs in the top 17 or 18, whatever the number was. I was like, my God, and I instantly tweeted that out. And then about six minutes later, I realized, oh, this is the third round. <laughs> so quickly hid my tail. So Twitter, yes, I recognize I can make mistakes and be wrong sometimes. But I mean, it's just brutal to watch Amy Olson come down. Stepfather or father-in-law rather passes away. And she, she bogeyed 16 after what, you know, wasn't the, it was a good tee shot. It was right at it, but it wasn't close to the right club. She tried an explosion shot from this dormant wet Bermuda, which I'm from Texas, it is about the hardest shot to have any clue how it's going to come out without knowing the lie. I don't know if she could have maybe made a better decision. Again, this kind of gets back to what we were talking about with Victor Hovland. Well, we'll kind of foreshadow the, uh, the upcoming episode with Victor Hovland since this will be released first rather, but Sometimes we're trying to trying to hit too many shots, and you know that may be a shot that she hasn't necessarily practiced a lot. I don't know where she lives, but there's not a whole lot of wet dormant Bermuda in America right now that you could have actually been practicing that shot from. And again, I'm not I never second guess a player's decision on something like that because it is such an artistic you know part of the game. I, I do feel like the shot she chose had to be on the harder end. She makes both, but then she birdies 18. I mean, the, the girl played, you know, basically plays the last nine holes, I believe, even par. And, you know, just just got outplayed. Sometimes you got to tip that cap. And so I, I have a question for both of you, not necessarily related to LPGA women's golf, but about mud balls, right? There was a lot of talk <laughs> around mud balls. And you, both of you have, have played significantly more tournament golf than I have. So, so where, do you, where do you stand on that? Do they – should they start moving to lift clean in place quicker than maybe they do? Um, where do you, where do you sit on that Mark? So mud balls for me, when I used to play were never really a massive thing. It was such a small percentage um, because we in the UK, I think we're very quick to go to pick and place. Like we're not afraid to go to pick and place. I think that's surprising. major championships, obviously in the UK, you're looking at links courses and the chances of getting many mud balls around links courses, even when it's atrocious weather, it just doesn't happen. They're sand based courses. It just, it, it, it very rarely happens. So my experience of them is they're annoying, but they're part of the beauty of what golf is about. You need those variables. You need those extra little chunks of skill set stroke luck i think to make golf as exciting as it is for me certainly uk based playing we just went straight to pick and place if there was issues of the course being too wet we weren't scared to go to pick and place you know pretty quickly uh, I, I so my recollection is that it was never a huge problem obviously i've had them and they've curved offline when i've not wanted to but i've never felt like I've had more than anyone else who was also competing at the same time. So for me, I, I, I don't know. I don't know in the US, are they just, I understand in a major tournament why they probably don't want to go to mud balls or to pick and place because it possibly ruins it a little bit. I don't know. What do you think? I, and again, Bill Harmon and I were going back and forth on this, about this on Facebook and anyone with the last name of Harmon, I can assure you, I respect more than anybody in the world of golf. And this is one where I do think that it is a, a traditionalist, maybe a not a rollback. I don't know where Bill stands on that, but it's it's a it's an older idea that the game is supposed to have, you know, like just be as hard as physically possible. It is a USGA stance. And I totally agree with that. Like if it's firm and fast and balls are bouncing everywhere, that's where we get our element of luck from in golf. If it's windy, the variable, you know, the subtle variances and sh shifts in wind. Uh 
two balls can be three feet apart and one is totally screwed behind a tree and one is totally fine. Like that to me is where we get our, our random luck introduced into the game. All, all great games. Poker has cards. Backgammon has dice. All great games has an outside agency element of luck, which is fantastic. But the problem with, you know, if, if, if I'm behind a tree, I can still chip out with my skills or I can hit a big curve or hook or whatever it is and, and recover from that shot with skill. A mud ball, you literally have zero idea what's going to happen. The mud might come off and it's a non-factor. The mud might stay on it and it could go left, it could go right. And that to me is just ridiculous. And I would actually say maybe where you're saying maybe not at a major championship, I would say especially at a major championship. No, it doesn't look good marking the ball and picking it up and cleaning it. Like, I get it. But I would rather have the person. I, I hate the idea of somebody spending 26 years of their life getting great at a sport and then in the most important situation they've ever been in on a golf course, potentially getting totally hosed by mud. And and I, I think the USGA, like, I really do believe that that they need to have, and obviously there's great players at the USGA. There's USGA champions. I, blanket statements are hard. That caveat's in there. But they have too many average to poor players that are making really important decisions that don't really understand the game at the highest level. And the mud ball is that exactly. I, I think it, I can't remember which US Mid-Am I was playing in, but it, I don't think it was last year's. It might have been. I don't remember. Anyways, I it was soaking wet. We should not have even been playing, let alone this, this, this drop that I got. Like I walked up and I set my foot down, water comes up and then it settles over two seconds. And the lady's like, no relief. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I called you over here just cause you were sitting there. Like this is the, I'm taking relief. She's like, you're not taking relief. That water did not stay. And I'm like, what are you talking about? When I stepped, I didn't push on it. I didn't do anything. Water was there. And of course it soaked in. That's what water and gravity yeah, yeah. does. She wouldn't give me relief. And I just had already had this opinion of the USGA and it just cemented it where I'm like, you just don't understand tournament golf. You don't understand anything. I hate saying, again, I hate saying it because they're a governing body, but they whiff on this so bad, in my opinion. And I do agree, that, understand that there are people that have valid sides of, we need luck. I think that's a valid argument. But I don't think that it trumps the most important golf tournaments of the year just getting yeah, tossed in the I, air to luck. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my point with it being an, a major or not is more that like I don't, I don't think the decision has anything to do with it being a major or not. But I think it does affect the decisions. So I think that's wrong. Like I, it, a mud ball is a mud ball if you're playing in a standard LPGA <laughs> yeah. event or you're playing in the ladies' US uh, women's open. Um, the, the most important thing for me as well, I mean, the, the other thing, sorry, the other point just to pick out is that it's not zero luck with a mud ball. There is still some elements of skill. It reduces it, but there are variables and patterns that will come out that you can choose to play and learn or not. But I mean, again, for me, it would be an interesting one. The study for me for, to have a definitive answer would be how many players have been affected in mud balls in the last X amount of years? You know, is it really making an effect to the tournament or is it very even that everyone gets a very even spread, for want of a better word? It probably is there, an even but, spread, but to your it, point... So of... if it's an even spread, it doesn't matter if they're on or off, you could argue, doesn't it? 
Well, but then the potential, did you get your bad mud ball on number six in Puerto Rico or number 16 in the final round of the Women's US Open? Like, Yeah, but it, number six on day one is as important as number same. 16 on day four. I, so. I totally understand that that idea, but, <laughs> it, but it is different. Like, again, this is where I would just say yes, but, and but is always a good argument, but it's just different. It's yeah. it's. It I mean, the thing the I think that's coming through, which is more interesting, is I don't have experience of mud balls because I do think in the UK, because we, we're used to playing in rubbish weather over it. Like, yeah. it's what we do all our lives. We are pretty quick to try and take that element out where it sounds a little bit for you that maybe they don't want to accept that some days it rains and then the rules seem to go a bit random. That's certainly something I've never experienced playing over here. Like, your, your description of standing there and water coming up, that's a drop. In the UK, that's a drop. Like you don't even have to call someone over. In the over. States, you, it's a you, drop. You, you, you call over your playing partner just so they know you're not picking it up for a random reason. You would never call a ruling officials over for that because it is a drop. So, it, it to me, it sounds a little bit almost. Uh, we're just used to playing in rubbish weather, so I think maybe we're a little bit more robust to try and make it as fair as possible. I mean, the biggest standout thing for me for the lady or the women's U.S. Open. Um, just how good they were playing. The dart throwing on day on the last day was ridiculously impressive. I love the Lim Kim dart throwing where she didn't even look, hits it, oh, sees so it's online, good. walks off. With the mask on. Yeah, exactly, playing with the mask on. That was as cool as, maybe not the best spectator sport for loads of people, but I just thought, yeah, she knows she's thrown a dart and she's just going to walk over there and get and put it as quick as possible. I thought it was fantastic. It was brilliant seeing a number of amateurs feature. Like I didn't think that was a big enough story in a major championship. At one point there was three of them, I think in the top five amateurs. Like that's just massive and brilliant. And the, the biggest thing that upset me as a UK watcher is it was very hard to follow it. I don't really follow on TV anymore, men or women's golf. I follow a bit, but not much. I generally am following through online apps and Twitter's a great source. Um, but some of the videos being posted on Twitter, I think, I can't remember if it was the LPGA Twitter feed or the US Open Women's Twitter feed, they weren't available in our territory. And I just thought that was a crying shame. You know, we're a pretty big, active golf audience in the UK. And it's things like that, the accessibility, I think, as much as they can open that up and it's not tied down to the politics of TV rights and what have you, the better it will be for their sport. So I found, I found that the same. What about for you, Lou? Did you catch much of the late of the women's US Open? Uh, I didn't catch as much as I, I would have liked. Uh, um, so I can't, uh, can't get into the depth of comment that Scott did, but uh, I'm a Monday big... finishes hurt the guy with the day job. Yeah. Monday finishes <laughs> were tough. I, my, I was planning to, uh, to, to really uh, uh, settle in on Sunday and, and catch the, uh, entire day's activity on Sunday and, and it got rained out. So it is tough for the guy with the day job that has to work on Monday. Yeah, so no, no tournament wants to go to a Monday finish, do they? Cause there's a lot of people who have got jobs. Yeah. Everyone sponsor, sponsor your favorite hacked out golf podcast. So that way Lou Stagner can quit his day job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah perfect. So that leads me on then to actually, let me, let me, let me make one more statement because I really thought on. one thing that was important from a, from a playing perspective, which obviously is always our goal here. Uh, the, the amateur, Pat from Texas, she was asked, she, she played well last year in the U.S. Open again, and she finished, uh, I think it was ninth here. I mean, obviously a great finish for a, an amateur finish. player. Amazing. amazing. 
And she was asked afterwards, you know, like, what did you learn? I mean, here's a girl that's just walking off. She just, just finished interview immediately after. Well, I have great finish, ninth place, top 10 in a major. You, you know, what did you learn from last year's experience? And her immediate answer was that getting my rest, prioritizing my rest is an important part of this game. And I constantly, it, there's a Phil Jackson quote where somebody asked him, how do you push guys like Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan to be as great as they are? And, and Phil Jackson said, if I have to push them, then they don't want it enough. I'm always trying to get my players to do less. And I was like, that's literally exactly what I do. I try to teach my players, guys like Zalatoris and, and whoever, that when, when they have some downtime, like take some downtime. I yeah. literally never took a day off when I was in my 20s because I didn't want to feel weird when I came back and have to re-loosen up. And I try to tell these guys, you need to use me as a 47-year-old as an example. I can go three weeks without hitting a ball. I come out, and yeah, it feels kind of screwy for a day or two, but I'm pretty quickly right back in the groove. And getting that rest is just mandatory for thought processes, energy, distance, everything. And so I really feel like everyone you know, at home listening, just to understand that sometimes you do need to take a day off or a light day, or you know, maybe some days you feel good, you can go a little bit harder, but understanding that sometimes resting is working. And I, I threw that out there on Twitter you can go through it, man. There's PGA Tour players, lots of PGA Tour caddies, great players that go through and, and like a tweet like that because they're yeah. kind of giving you the smoke signals of, hey, yeah. this is really important. So yeah. sometimes less point. is more. It's a great cliche, but true. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So lots of people, when we talk about women's golf, and even though it's a major championship, these um, subjects still spring up, which does fascinate me. Lou, you, I think you've got a tweet that you put out, reference five handicappers and the standard of playing LPGA Tour year in, year out. What have you got for me? Yeah, I, I put this out. This has uh, been a discussion that's been going on for years, for, for yeah, many 100%. years. I, I remember, I forget what forum it was. It might have been Golf WRX. There was a thread on there about five handicaps competing on the LPGA tour. And it, it, it was years, years old. And, and there were just thousands of posts on the topic and so many players, you know, continuing to think as five handicaps, they would be able to compete on the LPGA tour. Uh, I, I think they, uh, they believe that the shorter yardages that they play, they would be able to just go out there and, and tear it up. And so I put a tweet out there and it said to every five handicapped male golfer that thinks they could compete on the LPGA tour, you would be 50 shots back after four rounds, probably more. <laughs> and it got a pretty fair amount of attention. I, I was surprised by that. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the responses that I got to that tweet was, um, Hey, can you, you know, break down the math? Is it really 50 shots? That sure sounds like, like a lot. So I'll break down the math a little bit and tell you how I kind of came up with that. So I went uh, last couple of years of LPGA tournaments, the average winning score is about 15 under the course ratings that they play uh, average of about 72. Um, and that's not adjusted for tournament conditions. I was say, that's uh, probably light side two is right. Yeah. It's not adjusted for tournament conditions. So for a five handicap, what, what's a five handicap going to average? Uh, the Pope of Slope, uh, Dean, uh, what's his last name? I forget what it is. But basically, a, a rough guess of a scoring average for a player is, is take their handicap and add three strokes uh, and then add that on top of the course rating. So if we have a course rating of 72 and a five handicap 
and then we add three shots to their five, that gives us eight shots. So they would average about eight shots above the course rating. So they'd average about 80. So over the course of four rounds, they would be 32 over par. Well, the average winning score is about 15 under par. So that is a 47 shot difference right there. And that doesn't take into account the kind of golf that's being played. And I think that is, that's key there. I, in my opinion, there's, there's three styles of golf. There's casual golf. That, that's what I play every weekend with my buddies, casual golf. There's tournament golf played by amateurs. I've played a little bit of that. <laughs> and then there's tournament golf as a professional where you are playing for your paycheck, where if you don't play well, you don't get paid. And if you continue to not play well, you know, I, I've said that to people before and they respond back with, yeah, but they, they get sponsors. Yeah, they do. But if they continue <laughs> to not play well, those sponsors are all <laughs> going to disappear and go away. You can't and just you end go up out, with nothing. <clears throat> you end up with nothing. So they, there's a, in my opinion, I've never played worse than nothing. Golf. You have expenses, right? Yeah. Exactly. I, I've never played pro golf, but, but to, to me, that is a very different ball game altogether. And, and to try to say that a five handicap could even remotely come close to competing on the LPGA tour uh, is flat out but one of the I most ridiculous things you could say. It's very disrespectful. It... It's disrespectful as well. It, it's a 100%. male audience that you're talking to. So Correct. There is there is an element of sexism, even unintentional sexism in that. I mean, I'm defending it because it's just flat out sexism. But in those responses, it's, um, you know, it, you, you can see why people come to those conclusions. I've seen it for years on a lesson tee. What's the average course? distance that the LPGA tour is playing. I wouldn't know. I'm going to hazard a guess of around six, two to six, 5,000 yards. Would that be fairish guys? Yep. Uh -huh. Score, yeah. Scorecard yardage. It, it's somewhere in there. Some are, are, are a smidge higher, but so yeah. Can, it's, it's, so, so can a five handicapper shoot five under around a 6,200, 6,400 <laughs> yard course? Yes, they can. And they might have, can they do it four rounds in a row? Can they do it over and over again? It's the same issue you have when you ask golfers how far they hit their seven iron how far they hit their driver they all give you their top top end and amateurs tend to i mean one of the biggest things i've noticed with amateurs over years when you start collecting stats with them with consumable products i've said this before the thing that stands out the most is they are shocked and often hate the numbers that they're reading because they're actually averaging seven to ten over par and they can't work out why they're a five handicapper, if that's true, because they always thought they were shooting five over, six over, three over, level, five over. No, 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 you're not. You're shooting 15 over. You're shooting 20 over. And then one or two every 10 rounds, you shoot five over, stroke two over par, and the standard scratch in the UK goes up and you get cut. Like, it just, they, their perception of their own games is definitely something you speak to any teaching pro over years how far do you hit a seven iron that conversation has been talked about in professional teaching ranks for years because it's it's the standard 150 but they hit a shot and it's going 125 and you think well yeah it goes 150 when it lands and it bounces on that hole where you've got a bit of fringe but you are not hitting that club 150 it goes 150 on certain situations but if you got 150 over the water you're barely reaching the front of the water with that club and that's a hard pill for them to take often, I think. Well, I, I think in my opinion, like nobody, 
I, maybe I didn't. I mean, I saw Lou's post and I've scrolled through some of it while cackling, but I don't <laughs> think anybody thinks a five would be competitive. But some people think a five might come close to making a cut, which is obviously hilarious. But what I would even say is, is a scratch. The, the default answer is always, but, but I hit it so much farther past them. Yeah, yeah, and you're still a five or even a scratch. And what I've just tried to explain to people sometimes is, and I don't even know if maybe a, a 10 handicap can beat a five handicap more, you know, somewhat often just because both of them have a little bit more variance in their scores. But when I'm playing, you know, back in the, you know, over the last 12 years, I'm usually between a plus five and a plus seven. I have a buddy, Scott Hendricks, shout out. I've got a buddy who's a plus two to a one. And the only reason I gave him a shout out is he follows us and he's never beat me, not once. So here's a plus two <laughs> to a one-ish handicap over time. We've played, I mean, he was in my Friday game. We've played hundreds of times together. Yeah. And yes, I own the keys to his kitchen. So whenever I'm down one or two or three or four to go, I can assure you I start making gravy in his brain. <laughs> but <laughs> the guys literally never beat me. And I don't say that as cocky. I tried, I'm trying to impress upon people. These girls are plus five to plus seven handicaps from their tees, just like the professional men are. Yeah. Handicap, I, I, I do wonder if, you know, taking a five from the tips to a five to the reds, if their handicap wouldn't come down because of distance. And it's hard to rate courses, not having a clue where somebody's going to play, but they still, a five's not going to be any better than maybe a two or a three tops. A scratch isn't going to be any better than maybe a plus two or three tops. They're never competing, like actually competing. It's just, it's just not going to happen. hundred percent. I mean, I've been lucky enough to play with um, European women tour players in the UK on our videos, and they are just really good players. And they're, you know, they're, they're, U, they're European tour uh, players that aren't getting into all the majors. You know, that they're, they're good, solid ones, but they're not even the elite. I mean, we were lucky enough to play with Charlie Hull, who is in that elite field, you know, and she was just fantastic. I, I do think the women's game does not get half of the credit it deserves um, for many, many reasons, which maybe we could discuss in another podcast. What was the over, Lou, just back to you with that tweet. What was, you know, when you tweet something and you look at the responses, you get kind of a, you, you gauge a response of the masses. What was the response? Was it more heavily that your maths wasn't right? Or were there loads, obviously there, where people don't agree, I'm sure there were people who were agreeing with it. What was the response, did you feel? Uh, encouragingly, I, I thought that overall the response was uh, in support of that. So I, I think the, you know, the, the, they're vocal, but I think the vocal minority uh, is, is out there. But uh, over, overall, the, the response was pretty encouraging. It was supportive of the tweet, um, and uh, it, it was good to see that. There were some really interesting comments in the thread, and if you want to enjoy yourself, go get a cup of coffee and, and, and read through that, and there's some <laughs> just some wacky, wild nonsense yeah. in there. Chuck your handle out there, Lou. What handle yeah. would they need to go for that? Yeah, at Lou Stagner on Twitter. Yeah, it's a great Twitter feed to follow if you want some factual-based ideas. So I've got one concept just to finish then this uh, interesting podcast today, talking about the, the differences in the men's and the women's ideas of the game a little bit. Yeah, it does. I would love to see the men's and women's game in golf move more towards the major championships that we see in tennis, where they're on one venue. 
Um, I think the uh, aligning of those major venues, even if it was once every two years, once every three years or what have you, I know the logistics of it could be crazily difficult, but I do think it's something that could be worked into a cycle. I think the advantage that would allow the women's game to expose to that bigger audience and show the skills they have got would be phenomenal any quick thoughts on that idea guys just to finish i i think it's an interesting idea i had never i had never thought about it until you actually mentioned it yesterday when we were chatting about you know i i understand businesses need to make money and the logistics of contracts like and i I think it's a tough question. The women paid as much as men and just everything. Like I, it's such a hard subject because I don't understand the actual business, how the dollars actually work. But I had never thought about what a, you know, hand handcuffing, not having them on the same venue is like you said, like center court at Wimbledon is there for the men and women and they're both playing on it on the same day. I, I never put that together, but I think a course like, you know, a lot of the USGA places where they go to like, I believe is Oakland Hills in Chicago, where we use both courses right there on the same property. I think the, the practice facilities start to become a big challenge with that idea, but it'd be an interesting to take it beyond a thought experiment just once and see, you know, actually put up some turnstiles and see what kind of a spread you have when they're both right there. You try to stagger the tee times a little bit so you can make a full day of it and, Man, I, logistics, I mean, it, it is, I don't think it is anything more than a thought experiment. I don't think it's probably practical to actually pull off. But, but I mean, if you look man, at it, it'd I be mean, cool. Yeah, your venues like Pinehurst, which is where we got the closest example of it happening, where they had the US and the men's when Kaima, I think it was the year Kaima won. But they were Pinehurst. weeks, back to back weeks. They were weeks apart, I agree. But that venue. You've got eight courses there, massive practice facilities. I mean, eight courses, you, know, you go to St. Andrews, they haven't got a massive practice area. They're using one of the other courses. The yeah. other course closes and they put them on there. St. Han St. Andrews <clears throat> has a number of golf courses. Why you couldn't have, if let's take Pinehurst as an example, why you, if you use two courses, why couldn't you have half of the field on one course from both sexes and half of the field on the other course from both sexes and flipping them around the last day with the last day, both fields being cut down to their cut line last few days and then them all playing on that same course. So not that you've got men playing with women, not that that would be a problem. No, I know that. You need people in the same tournament competing, but why would I not sit on the eighth green at Pinehurst on the final day and watch a men's group come through and then the next a women's group come through and then but the you're actually like saying shuffle the tea times together to where it's a men's group women's group and they're all competing once think, the cut has happened you I would think there you potentially match. again just like just spitballing devil's advocate here but I think what you run into there is now you're going to have the lead groups separated almost an hour hour and a half from people that are in 10th and 12th place I mean, yeah. then you really start getting some variance in weather outcomes and the luck factor that that yeah, brings in. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm, this isn't quite the, I played Augusta drop, but I, the only time I played Pinehurst number two in the US Open drop. But yeah. I don't remember there being, I, I know there's another course where number two is, but that's where all the corporate pavilions were and everything was set up on that. Actually finding two courses at the same place where you don't have to use at St. Andrews, one is the driving range at Piners. Well, I mean, even at Baltusrol, the upper 18 upper is the grandstand for number 18. The left side of number 18 on the lower course 
is number 18 from the upper course. And that's where they build the grandstand. Sorry, upper course. I, I just think logistically finding two courses. I think that's why, yeah, I, I, I do not doubt. Logistically, it's an absolute, you know, it's something I'm not logistically smart enough in any way to understand. And I am just throwing ideas out there. But certainly Pinehurst with its eight or nine courses, even, even the women's event happening in a major on another course, which is literally a like an internal bus stroke walk ride, to think that an audience that is going to watch both of those sets wouldn't bleed onto both courses, I think would just be fantastic for trying to spread the love around two fantastic tours and certainly two fantastic majors. I mean, the flip side is that they need their separate tournaments. They should stand alone and they should be big enough to stand alone, which I would also agree with, but certainly anything that helps boost the women's game to where it should be for me is only a bonus. Well, and, and honestly, like when I was growing up and even at my course that I was a member at for 15 years, we really just, I haven't been around much female play. Like I just have personally, just my courses I grew up at just didn't happen to have much. But when I went out and filmed that, uh, that video with, with Wesley or George Bryan for Bryan Brothers video, we went out to a local muni here and I'm not kidding. There were 40 women on the range, like there wasn't a man. And I even asked him when it says like, is this women's play day? And they're like, dude, it's like this every day. And as I, you know, since I'm not a member of the country club now, I, as I've played more municipal golf and in decent daily rate places, I'm stunned at how many women are playing golf. So I do think that just from a, a longevity of the sport, a round is a round, a, a, you know, a cart fee is a cart fee is a cart fee. And so getting more women out would really help the game and again we're all here because we love golf it's a great great game i definitely think that the more people obviously as an absolute sense we have playing it the better yeah but there's just no reason why we can't get a, a little bit more of a spotlight and eyeball I, I i do think that the thing with as long as it's within a closed loop kind of bus right away it, you just can't shuttle many people back and forth via bus it, it literally needs to be on the same property i think to actually yeah Absolutely. Turn, move the needle for the women's attendance. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Lou, what do you think? You think it's got potential as an idea? It's a loose idea. I, I you know, as in, I, I, I haven't sealed all the logistics of it yet. No, <laughs> but what, I, what are your thoughts? I like the idea. I think it's a, it's a great idea. And you know, hearing the the reference to tennis and what they do and how they do it, it it uh, makes sense. I'm not a huge tennis fan. I occasionally will follow follow it. I'll, I'll uh, when the majors pop up, I'll I'll pay a little bit more attention to the majors. And I, in the past, I never had realized, you're right, they just mix it together in tennis. And yeah. um, it, it, it's a really interesting concept for golf. I, I think it would be worthwhile giving it a shot and trying to figure out those logistics. It doesn't need to be at a major tournament. It can just be a regular stop. Um, That's how it, to do it, actually. Just yeah, workshop it. Start, yeah, absolutely. Regular stop. It could even be a, in one of the uh, off-week events somewhere, perhaps. But even I a corn fairy tournament, honestly, just to start with, to try to shuffle it together and see how it goes. Is, is yeah, well, we've got sport. we've got on the European tour a Annika Sorensen and um, Henrik Stenson joint mixed event, which will happen next week in Sweden. Really? It's starting to happen. I mean, I think you've got to remember in tennis, there were some massive names, which were the best players in the women's game, who stood up and publicly got shots taken at them telling the world that it's sexist that they're not getting paid the same and you know you got 
Billie Jean King, Nav Rattleover, you know, you've got some landmark women's names who stood up there, put their head up and were prepared to get massive shots taken at them to try and drive that game forwards for the women. And it's, it, it's not where it needs to be, but certainly in the majors, it's in a much stronger place, possibly than where the women's game and men's game is in golf, where it does seem to be very, very divided and uneven in possibly um, some of the exposure it gets. I think one key thing, though, that again, back to apparently I'm just going to play the devil's advocate on this whole thing. The one key thing to tennis tournaments, too, though, is it's every turn it's match play. So by the time we get to the round of 16, there's only 32 people on 100%. both sides. I mean, and that's that's a huge yeah. thing. One one quick uh, non-golf story. My dad and I, when I was probably about seven years old, we were driving down the road here in Dallas and all of a sudden we'd spun around, did a U-turn real quick, did another one. He opened the door like you would in a cart and kind of leaned out because he had saw a, a purse that was sitting in the middle of the road, picked it up. He handed me the thing and he's like, see if there's a license in it. Open it up. Martina Navratilova. Wow. Really? <laughs> we found her purse in the middle of the road. She used to live here apparently. Fantastic. Um, yeah. We just drove it, drove it to their, to her house. And she's like, uh, you know, I, I, I knew I had lost it. I said I left it on my trunk or on the top of my car when I was putting the groceries in. Like, so everybody's just a normal person. So everybody has <laughs> I good like groceries. That That's yeah, a good it, was, it was crazy. Well, there we go. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, check out the podcast next week. We've got a fun 2020 and 2021 looking forward review and uh, preview, I guess, of 2021. Thank you again, gentlemen. It's been fun. It has been fun. Always fun. Thank you. Yeah, love it. Love it. Got some great stuff coming. Absolutely. And thanks, everybody listening. And we'll speak to you next week. 